See the Bell V-247 Vigilant in action this week at the Marine Corps Aviation Association Symposium, booth number 24, and the Bell 407 GXI at the Naval Helicopter Association Annual Meeting, booth number 68. Learn more at bellflight.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. With me today is Ward Carroll, Director of Outreach and Marketing for the Naval Institute, and Richard Latour on the podcast for the first time. Richard is the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. And today we're talking about a naval history topic in the current issue, the uh, June issue of Naval History Magazine on pages, uh, starting on pages 30, 31, is an article by Hill Goodspeed. Uh, and is called I Am a Sailor and a Sea Wolf. And this is the story of Helicopter Attack Squadron Light 3, the Sea Wolves, uh, and their combat action in Vietnam. Uh, so we've got uh, on the line from San Diego, uh, director and producer, uh, Jeff Arbalo and Shannon Arbalo. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, they have uh, produced a documentary called Scramble the Sea Wolves, and this documentary right now is a limited time um, uh, member benefit. Uh, so if you're a member of the Naval Institute and go to my account, there's a tab at the top right-hand side of the website. You'll get to a drop-down menu and you'll see Scramble the Sea Wolves on your page. And you can, can watch the, uh, uh, the documentary there. It is open only for mem- Naval Institute members right now. So it's a member exclusive. Uh, Jeff and uh, Shannon, uh, tell us your connection with the story of the Sea Wolves and how you came to uh, want to take this on as a documentary project. Um, Shannon's dad, uh, my father-in-law, Joe Crutcher, is a Sea Wolf. He had asked me if I could um, go shoot something that they were having on the Midway. Uh, I had no idea what it was. And so... Um, ended up going to, to shoot, uh, what it was, it was actually a, um, tribute to the 44 fallen brothers who didn't make it back from Vietnam. He knew I was a cinematographer, kind of kept hinting that he wanted a way to remember this thing that he was going to be doing. So finally Shannon said, I think my dad wants you to go take your cameras and shoot this thing that he's doing. (laughs) So again, I had no idea what it was, um, took the cameras set up i i had no idea how many people were going to be there and i think there was about 600 people um so i wasn't really ready for that everybody kind of came up and were they were giving a little talk on the sea wolves and what they did i started to get really interested in all the different stories that i was hearing and how amazing these guys were and all the rescues that they did um we went on to do some interviews that day just really got me intrigued with the project so this squadron, for those uh, our listeners who aren't aware of, uh, of the history of the Sea Wolves, the squadron was stood up in 1966 in Vietnam during the war. It never existed as a unit back here, CONUS. Uh, it was uh, it was born out of necessity uh, in the Mekong Delta, uh, down in, in uh, South Vietnam. Uh, the uh, the the area of uh, the Delta was. Uh, roadless because it was just um, essentially waterlogged. There's all kinds of tributaries to the Mekong and, and everything moved, including uh, enemy troops moved via water. And so the Navy had gone in, uh, Brownwater uh, Navy, the PBR, the, the patrol river, riverine boats, 
uh, and they and the Navy SEALs as well were were conducting missions in the Mekong Delta, uh, and they were having um, you know suffering heavy casualties and needed air support. Uh, and the Army could provide some air support at in daytime only. And, uh, and so the Navy said, Hey, we, we need a naval aviation unit dedicated to providing air support in this area, uh, for the riverine forces and for the Navy SEALs. And they got to be able to do missions on call 24 seven, uh, day, night, didn't matter, bad weather. Uh, and so that was how this unit got stood up. Uh, and, and it's just an amazing story. And, and, um, Shannon, your, your father was a maintainer there in the unit at, at right at the start, correct? Yeah, he was, uh, he was there in, uh, April of 67, and he served under, uh, Captain Robert Spencer, who's in the film, who was actually the very first, uh, SEAL of the squadron, and, uh, very challenging at the beginning. And I think the part of the story that, uh, just absolutely blew me away, and, and we've come to realize it's one of the most surprising aspects of their story when you consider what they accomplished is, um, the very humble beginnings and using the hand-me-down war-torn Hueys given to them by the Army and what they were really able to work with, you know, just with their ingenuity, uh, their dedication, their commitment, their skill set, establishing this squadron, especially in the beginning days. This comes out really nicely in the uh, documentary, the fact that uh, this unit was put together really as sort of a, a ragtag unit thrown together uh, and as you just mentioned, they were flying uh, hand-me-down Army helicopters, uh, UH-1 Hueys. And so the, the Army said, yeah, you, Navy, you can have some of these uh, helicopters. Uh, and, and so that's how they established the squadron. Also, Bill, uh, a lot of the missions that the uh, squadron flew were in support of Army soldiers on the ground. They would be landed in, in different parts of the Mekong Delta to seek out the Viet Cong fighters there, and uh, their aerial support was provided by HAL-3. Incredible, yeah. And this story is coming to light a lot. You know, you've got uh, the, the article by Hill Goodspeed in Naval History uh, last year, the winning essay in the CNO's 2018 uh, Naval History Essay Contest was won by a Navy helicopter pilot named uh, Rob Swain, a lieutenant, who wrote about this squadron, wrote about the lessons that the Navy of today, the helicopter community of the Navy today, can learn from what this unit was able to do and the, the ferocity that with, with, with which they operated in, in uh, wartime, in Vietnam, uh, going low at places and at times that nobody else would fly. Uh, and they just took the they took the fight to the enemy, mm-hmm. and that comes out. Yeah, and, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, and just just to add to that, we recently entered the, the um, San Diego uh, Film Week Festival. Scramble the Sea Wolves did win Best Feature Documentary, so we just recently won that award at the uh, San Diego Film Awards. Speaking to to what you just mentioned with the article and the exposure the Sea Wolves are getting. We couldn't be more thrilled for the Seawolves that are, are still living today and the families that, um, of the Seawolves that have passed to know that at this time in their lives, their story is finally being talked about. Um, you know, we learned very early on through, you know, the course of 80 interviews or so that the, the story is virtually unknown amongst most Americans in our country. 
And unless you were a brown water Navy sailor, a Navy SEAL, a, you know, uh, you happen to know a, a helicopter pilot or so forth, um, chances are you just didn't hear about the sea wolves. So we can, we, we smile when we think about what this means to these true American heroes today. And, and I, I also think that what you were just talking about a minute ago, which is the, uh, how we were talking about the maintainers and what they did with the, QEs and how they took them from the army and fixed them up. Um, most people, when I actually was talking to them about that, that story, they were saying, well, how are you going to put that in the film and make it interesting? Because no, nobody, you know, nobody puts that in the film. And I think that's what makes this documentary different is that we did talk about the maintainers and what they did and how special they were. And, um, we made it interesting, I, I believe, and funny. Uh, at parts, and so it really pulled that story out, and a lot of people had have emailed us and thanked us for for putting that feature in there. So, just to orient the unlearned listeners, the combat atmosphere we're talking about is is a lot like that in Apocalypse Now. If you imagine Apocalypse Now with direct air support from Navy helicopters and not Colonel Kurtz and th- those guys, and you remember that that the uh, the um, I'm blanking on the actor um, who was the Robert Duvall. No, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> so he went off on like a separate mission to go all the way down the river, right? And that's the last you saw of uh, of the helicopter support. As a naval aviator, what I like about this story is the the courage and the pluck and the get it done element. In fact, we were having a conversation uh, before before you guys dialed in about how how could this have happened. And the answer is because this is naval aviation. It's a need that's identified. Mm-hmm. An admiral says to the commander of the entire war, hey, you know, we can get you air cover. And then a year later, you have a squadron on the scene and, and getting it done. You know, and, and uh, so that the heritage of naval aviation, these guys are an example on steroids, right? Both from the maintenance <laughs> side, from from the uh, fly at night when it's never been done before stand, standpoint. So... It's like this is a, a capability that needs to happen. Don't talk to me about what the rules and regulations are. Let's let's and we're not going to do anything that's un, inherently reckless, right? Because that that's no good for anybody. If you crash all the helicopters on the first night, that doesn't help anybody. Let's assume that we're talented enough that that's not going to be the case, and let's figure out how do we get this thing done in terms of uh, uh you know mission sets and and the way it's maintained and. I entreat the, if you're listening and you haven't, if you're a member, you haven't watched it, then you need to do that soonest. And if you're not a member, this is a good reason to become a member to access this movie because it really does. This is a part of the Vietnam War that we think has been told everything. What, what is left to say about Vietnam? You know, I just watched Full Metal Jacket the other night, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we've all seen Apocalypse Now. We've seen all the other classic movies that are about Vietnam, Deer Hunter. Well, this is a new story and one that, uh, you know, rightfully so, as, as you guys were just saying, it's a story that deserves to be be told and it, and at long last it is being told. Yeah, and yeah. told beautifully. Yeah, beautifully. Yeah, it's just and, a great yeah. story. And Jeff and Shannon, wasn't this a, a highly decorated unit? The most decorated. Wow. The most decorated squadron. Uh, reading here from the article on page 35 by uh, by Goodspeed, statistics from its operations between 67 and 1972 speak for themselves. 130,000 flight hours on combat and logistical support missions, 
over 1,500 medical evacuations of wounded personnel, decorations in numbers that are amazing, five Navy crosses, 31 Silver Stars, 219 DF Distinguished Flying Crosses, 156 awards the Purple Heart, and 44 Sea Wolves who made the ultimate sacrifice. So, uh, yeah, this is this is the stuff of true grit and guts, right? So let's talk about the mechanics of putting the movie together. What were some of the stumbling blocks? What you know, t- talk about how you guys uh, got it to to c- come to be. Well, yeah, that it, it did take quite a while. Um, probably the biggest problem that you know we had was um, when I would call some of the up and say, hey, can you get me your film that you said you had or some of your pictures? Um, and then three weeks later, it still wasn't there. And then I'd call them back and say, hey, I still haven't received anything from you. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about it. Uh, it's in my storage. Let me go get it. Uh, three weeks later, I still didn't have it. So I'd call again. I'd say, um, I, I never received anything from you. And then they would say, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. And this was like more than one person that said this to me. I'm so sorry. I went to my storage, but I just couldn't remember why I was there. What's the average well, age of the squadron at that time, right? They're starting to get up there in years. Yeah. We started production. Our first interviews took place in 2014 at, uh, in Dallas, Texas at the reunion. So these guys are all in their their seventies and maybe older even, right? About yeah, yeah, and and some in their mid to late sixties. If they were real young, towards the back end of you know the if they were there in seventy one, seventy two, right? Um, and if they were real young, eighteen, nineteen, then they're still in their late sixties. Yeah, okay. I, I even think we had a couple of guys that said that their dads had written for them to go into the. Um, military at 17 and so some of these guys were just barely turning 18 when they were just getting over there so, so again let's so, just back up a little bit to get the chron- chronology right so the 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 initial idea was born of the the sea stories that that your your father told and and then did you gather did you have like a, a gathering of, of all the the sea wolves and and then from that you're like i think we have enough material to maybe make a documentary is that how that came together Actually, so when Jeff was sharing about our first experience on the flight deck of the Midway at the ceremony honoring the 44 fallen seawolves, that was several years before we actually began production on the documentary. And as a daughter of a seawolf, I've come to learn over the years that um, there are many, many other children and grandchildren and families that simply had no idea what their dads did as part of the squadron or during the Vietnam War. So I didn't know of the Seawolves prior to, you know, Jeff and I's time on the flight deck when we really started to hear. So that was where the initial idea was um, established. And then it did take a few years before um, Jeff put the ball in motion, approached my dad and the executive committee with the idea of producing a documentary and once they knew that uh, our intentions were on point and we were going to protect and respect and care for their story, then that's when it really started. And that took place in 2014. So, Jeff, just so the audience knows, your background is uh, sort of shooting uh, sports action stuff, surf movies, skateboard documentaries, that sort of thing. Correct. I, I spent a lot of years working um for the pro surfing tour also the isa and then surfing america for all the young kids and i had done several surf documentaries and 
spent most of my time doing that. And then I, you know, I, I work in TV as well and learned a lot of different things with uh, interview techniques and uh, lighting and editing. So, so what, what really time frame, what, what surf era are we talking about here? Surf era? Well, I think I started my very first surf program. I actually did a surf show before I did any movie. And I think I did that somewhere around 97, 98. That was when I first started doing it. So who was the cool surfer back then? Well, it's probably always been Kelly Slater. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it was Sean Thompson at one time, but uh, b- before Kelly was born, I guess. Oh, yeah. Kelly, Kelly's, you know, he's won 11 world titles, so he's yeah. been around for a long time. Yeah, no doubt. But yes, Sean Thompson. Uh, my, my, my inspiration was Tom Curran. Okay. Um, okay. That's, what, that's what got me into surfing, and, and that's what made me uh, want to shoot surfing was Tom Curran. Okay, okay. So this was a wholly different, this was a departure from that, the, the, the Seawolves documentary. Yeah, it was a huge departure. And in fact, you know, none of the Seawolves had seen what we were doing. When we premiered this movie, um, that, you know, none of them had any idea what they were going to watch or see or, um, you know, they, they were hoping that we had put something together that they were going to love and, um, I was also hoping that I was going to put something together. Yeah. So, so you're at, you're uh, at the midway, you decide you're going to do it. And then, so then what? Um, so it took me a while because I was, I was traveling the world shooting surfing and, and I was also doing some other projects. And before that I was a, I was a school teacher as well. So I worked a lot and it, and it finally just came time where I, Jen and I talked and I said, Hey, if I'm ever going to do this documentary, I'm going to have to take some time away from traveling and, um, you know, just really jump into this documentary. And so, and so Shannon, this was your to... first, this was your first time to, to do a, a production. Oh yeah. This was my first experience as well. Um, you know, working as a, a producer and all of the, the responsibilities that come along with that, arranging interviews and fundraising and, uh, you know, the paperwork behind it. So it was, it was definitely a learning experience for me, but I have to tell you, you know, you had asked, you know, what were some of our challenges along the way? And, um, most people don't know this, but, uh, the Seawolves do is, you know, we, we really had a small crew of two, you know, Jeff and I, and while I couldn't do any of the production work because it's outside my skill set, um, that really fell on Jeff's shoulders. So, as a, as a wife and the daughter of a Seawolf, and, you know, we made the Seawolves a promise that at no point were we going to pass the baton on this story, and we were going to finish a film that would honor them and finally share their story. You know, we put every bit of our energy and heart into this film um, to, to honor them. But, yes, it was a first experience for me. <laughs> Did you reach out to uh, the Department of Defense or the Navy at all for uh, for help in, in producing this documentary? Was there any Navy official, uh, you know, film coverage or photos or anything like that or, or help in getting you in touch with uh, with survivors? Well, one of the things that we try to do with, with this was um, try to use as much original footage as we could. So we converted um, over 70 reels of film from the Seawolves themselves. That's where we wanted to start. 
and then kind of see like, okay, what do we not have that we might need to add in? So we, I, I think it was over 70 reels of film, probably anywhere from five to 8,000 pictures uh, that we went through. And then we interviewed um, sea wolves, you know, um, PBR guys and seals. And I think we did over 70 interviews as well. So was this wow. eight millimeter like home movie reels? Is oh, that yeah. okay? Yes, eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter, and then what I did was I sent it off to a company and they did all the conversion for it. And um, and that took you know it took a while, uh, and like I said, it took a while to get the film from the guys. So that's that was part of the process in, in getting that going. But um, yeah, that it was it was a long process, but I think it's what made the film special. Almost every time we've showed this movie. You know, we have at least five or six people ask us in the audience or afterwards, where did you get all the film? Where did you get all those pictures? I've never seen that. Where did you get that from? And it's original Siwa footage and, and pictures. And if I can add, I think one of the things that um, was very important to Jeff and I, you know, when you, when you know you've got uh, an hour and 26 minutes, you know, to, for a broadcast version of this movie, every second counted. And when you look at the information, the facts, the logistics that can be researched, um, this film really shows the other side of that. So these are real stories, perspectives, experiences, stuff that you can't find in the history book. Um, certainly there's facts and data in the movie because that's very important and we had access to that information, but um, we really wanted to capitalize on every second of this story, focusing on these guys, their story, their experiences, just very personal. Yeah, Shannon, now I was going to ask you about the research. If it required a lot of research on your part into the history of the unit, or did you rely on the veterans to kind of tell that history themselves? No, we, we certainly did research. You know, I um, did quite a bit of research online. I'm fairly resourceful. There were several great publications that um, I found, um, you know, I believe one of the, the books, uh, you know, that was a great resource was um, War in the Shallows. Um, which was a Navy publication, but there's all kinds of resources available. And, and there are um, historical accounts from Seawolves, and a uh, historian with the Seawolf Association was a tremendous resource as well. Um, you know, we can go back and we can look at um, Task Force 116, the history that's pub uh, published, uh, newspaper articles. You know, uh, there's a lot of resources available that we were able to basically pull from but the sea wolves if you you've watched the movie you can tell that the sea wolves do a very good job at telling the story and the history yeah there's beautiful footage of uh sea wolves operating from a navy lst up in the river uh it, you know here in in hill goodspeed's article talks about how they essentially worked, you know, 24-7, they were on call, and their their goal was to be to get the, the warning order that, that their services were needed, close air support or medevac, uh, and from the time they got the call, they would be airborne within three minutes. So these guys could go from a, a sound sleep 
the, the, the word comes over the one MC, scramble the sea wolves, and you got Hueys, and they operated in pairs. So it's two gunships, and they'd be airborne off this LST within three minutes to go out and, and support SEALs or air support for PBRs up, you know, further up the river. Uh, but, but they were on call 24-7. It was really impressive. That, that is very impressive. Yeah, and one, one important thing is this is all set against the background of uh, a Navy operation called Game Warden, which the, the goal of that was to interdict supplies to the Viet Cong and the Mekong Delta. And most of those supplies came via the sea, and they would be transferred from trawlers, say, to smaller craft, and then they would try and slip past larger U.S. warships, and then there would be a line of smaller U.S. warships, and then there would be the swift boats and the PRBs, BBRs, farther back. Uh, in the rivers, and um, that's you know back back in the Mekong was where the uh, squadron operated in conjunction with these smaller navy craft. They actually had nine detachments that were strategically located throughout the Mekong Delta. So you know, as, as the movie shared, and as you just mentioned, they were airborne in three minutes, and they could literally be overhead. Um, I believe Tom Don, Don Thompson said uh, five minutes or ten minutes or so. They could literally be anywhere in the Mekong Delta just because they were strategically spread out, um, which I thought was very smart and effective. And many guys are alive today because of that uh, strategy. Yeah, and a, and a lot of the guys were telling us how they would just sleep in, in their um, in their flight suit. You know, I'm just going to sleep in this. In fact, I'm. Some guys even said, well, I just kept my boots on. I, I slept in my boots and my flight suit. That way I never had to put it on. I was just ready to go. You know, that made it quick and, and accessible for these guys. They, they, were, they became so good at it. They became so good that they started doing other missions outside of what they were really um, originally put together for. And I think the story, as you were talking about in the Mekong Delta, so many people don't know how important that was to stop those weapons from coming in. And if it wasn't for all the, you know, river, riverine crafts there and the sea was helping to support that, there would have probably been so many more lives lost. And that's why I, I think we just are constantly every day getting emails and posts on Facebook telling us how much they thank the sea wolves and they're so glad that this story's out because you know, their lives were saved because of the sea wolves. And so we feel good that we were finally able to tell this story. Yeah. And some of the footage in this documentary shows just how close these guys were to the enemy, right? So, you know, you, you, you envision, uh, that your, your infantry guys are looking almost into the eyes of the enemy when they're having a firefight, but you don't think of close air support as being that intimate with the enemy. But these guys, and, and I, I'm guessing much of that footage is that original footage that these guys were, you know, pulling out of this, the shelves of their garage and their storage sheds. Uh, but some of that footage just shows when they're flying 50, 60 feet off the deck and the door gunners are going at it with the guys in the, in the rice paddies, like you could almost see the eyeballs of the Viet Cong looking back at you in that, that gun, you know, footage. It's incredible. This is a very exciting documentary to watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, you know, the interviews are great, the, the personalities involved, and then that original footage that you were able to, you know, get and, and convert and digitize just shows how, you know, how daring and low and right in the fight these guys were. What did you guys learn uh, over the course of making this that maybe you didn't know, not just about your dad, but about the war? 
Oh gosh, that's a that's a great question. I um I would say the humanitarian aid um, that our military servicemen and women contributed to South Vietnam. Um, you know, I know I can share this confidently. Uh, a lot of the groundwater navy that was there and our CDs and Navy SEALs and PBRs, you know, they they contributed a lot to the South Vietnamese in way of providing shelter and um, electricity and working with the orphanages. Um, it's not talked about uh, enough, the humanitarian aid that we provided to the South. But my big takeaway, and I know Jeff wants to share something that he learned too, but one of the takeaways for me personally is um, what sacrifice truly looks like. You know, uh, most people, if you've watched the movie, you certainly know this by now, but this was an all-volunteer squadron, and some of these guys were 18, 19 years old, and they did one hell of a great job at that age saving lives. So when I look at a serviceman today or woman, and I say thank you for your service and your sacrifice, as an American, I now know what sacrifice truly looks like, and I have a much deeper appreciation yeah, and I also I, I think the um, the age of these guys and the responsibility that they were given at such an early age, and I think Dick Barr kind of talks about that that through the rest of his naval career, um, and I believe he spent over twenty years um, in the Navy, and he said he never had that kind of responsibility after that, and he said, and it's unheard of today that. Somebody at his, I think he was, uh, yeah, JG, a Lieutenant JG, that somebody today would not have that kind of responsibility. And some of these guys, a lot of guys, you know, there's so many more stories that were told, but obviously, you know, we could only put so much into the documentary. Um, doesn't mean that there won't be a part two, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, um, there's so much stories and then, like I said, when you heard how much responsibility these guys had, and I was thinking, wow, that would just terrify me to know that at 18 or 19 years old, I was in charge of all these other guys' lives and, and making sure that everybody got home safe. So that was the biggest takeaway for me, for me is what these guys went through on a daily basis, how, how crazy it was, yeah. and, and then how much respect that um, – you know, I, I feel for all these guys. And that all comes through beautifully in your documentary. I have uh, one more question for you. Uh, what's your next project? Well, we have two We have two things that we're working on. We're actually doing a, a track and field documentary right now. I, I, I also ran track in college. And I, I was a coach and a teacher for uh, 25 years. Even while I was doing all the filming and stuff, I was teaching. And so... I love track and field, and so that's our next documentary. It's uh, something on the Mount Sac relays, and then uh, we're going to be we're also working with some PBR guys right now, and we're also looking at a part two with um, Scramble Sea Wolves and maybe more of a, a just a war story. So we we've got a couple things in the works, and but we definitely want to carry on with with. The, you know, what we did with this Vietnam documentary because we've just got so many positive responses and and uh, it's probably the most incredible documentary that I've ever done. Doing, doing uh, surf documentaries, I thought, there's nothing ever going to be better than surf documentaries because, you know, you, you really have this special bond with surfers and you become friends and stuff. 
with this, it was, um, they became family. They, they are our family, and we, we kind of smile when we think about the fact that there were 2,556 men who served in the Hal 3 Squadron over their five-and-a-half-year existence. And for, for those that are alive today, many of them have become very close friends of ours. So we have a bunch of uncles that we didn't have before. And, you know, really, to be honest with you, we didn't mention this, but I think it's an important note that this film would not have been possible without the trust that they extended to us. Uh, we, we realized very early on that these stories are stories that are kept to themselves. Um, they're shared only amongst their brothers that could relate to their experience during the Vietnam War. So for them to share their story, their most sacred story with Jeff and I, and believe us when we looked at them and told us they could trust us with their words, with their um, experiences, and we would protect it and respect it and care for it. For them to extend that trust is the whole reason why this film was made possible. Well, that's a credit to you guys. Our guests have been Jeff and Shannon Arbalo. They are the creators, directors, produ- producers of a documentary called Scramble the Sea Wolves. It's the story of how three only available at usni.org on your member profile page. So if you are a member and you haven't accessed that, check it out. If you're not a member, this is a good reason to become a member. We also have a companion article in the current issue of Naval History Magazine. A lot of people don't realize that the periodicals team at the Naval Institute produces more than just proceedings. We also have Naval History. We've had our first-time co-host, Richard Latour, who's the editor-in-chief of Naval History, but it's on page 30. It's called I'm a Sailor and a Sea Wolf. So Shannon and Jeff, thanks very much for being on the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you guys so much. And we also just want to remind remind everyone, too, that the uh, Blu-ray that we, we sell is a, is a longer version. Um, yeah. It's an extended version. And, that, and you can get that at scramblethesewolves.com. Yes, sir. Okay. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Okay, yeah, guys. We appreciate it. Our, okay, our pleasure. take care. Okay. Thank you. So that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll talk to you guys very soon. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the Bell 407 GXI, a helicopter bringing advanced training technology, best value in life cycle sustainability to the next generation of naval aviators. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407.